Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two trusty co-hosts, uh, Chris Dorides and Marissa Di Natale. How guys? How are you guys doing this week? Good. Hey, That's Mark. Good. good. Busy week. Yeah. Would you ever tell me that you weren't doing well? Like, ah, I'm not doing so well. I would. Oh, you would. Okay. <laughs> when I when I had COVID, I told you I was. Oh yeah, that's right. You did tell brains. me that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Keep it real. I keep it honest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Marissa, would you ever tell me the things? I don't know. Wrong? It depends. I guess it depends the source of the, you know, angst. I got it. Yeah, makes sense. Makes yeah. sense. But I'm glad you guys are doing well. And we have a guest, Steve Roach. Stephen Roach. Good to see you, Steve. Good to see you, Mark. I'm doing well too. You didn't ask, but I'm doing well. That was next, <laughs> and absolutely the very next question. You look like you're doing well. I can't complain. Yeah, that's I mean, I could, but you know, what's the point? <laughs> right, what's the point? <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's really an honor to have you on um, uh, Inside Economics. Uh, we, we are going to talk a lot about China um, uh, because, of course, that's your focus. You, you're the senior, uh, you're a senior fellow at the uh, China Center at the Yale Law School. And um, uh, you've been associated with Yale now for, about a decade, right? Has it been about that um, long? Since 2010. 2010. I was still working at Morgan Stanley at the time, uh, but nearing my 30-year anniversary, which I felt was an appropriate time to um, escape from Wall Street, Wall Street. So I overlapped for a couple of years to see if I wanted to go into full-time teaching, and I did. So I pulled the plug on Morgan Stanley in 2012, and has been have been a full time faculty member at Yale since then. Yeah, and you're you you uh, it's in the Yale School of Management, right? Is that the business school for Yale? Forgive me if I should know. Well, that, but... yeah, it is. You know, Yale yeah. has its own <laughs> jargon, so business is not an accepted word in the uh, pristine environment of Yale. They call it management. Got it. Uh, but I'm actually uh, about a year ago decided. <laughs> Uh, that after a dozen or so years teaching, uh, I would I would stop doing that, and and so now I'm more in a China research center in the law school, allowing me to write and speak and engage with um, you know a select group of students, which is which is perfect for me at this point. That sounds cool. And you wrote, you recently wrote a book. You've written a bunch of books over the years, but the most recent one, Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives, that that you published, I guess, at the end of 22, coming into 23? I did. I published it yeah. in um, late November. And, um, you know, timing is everything. You know, these two nations want to be at each other's throats. So um, the, the conflict has continued to escalate. And uh, the demand of my time to talk about uh, a seemingly intractable conflict has has grown, and it's good for conflict business. Yeah, right. It's good to be wanted, uh, certainly. And uh, we're we're going to come back to the book uh, a bit in the conversation. Before we move on, uh, you 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 mentioned this. You were at Morgan Stanley for thirty years, and you were chief economist for I don't know how long. At least was it the most of that period, yeah. Certainly beginning in the late um, in, uh, 1980s, early 1990s, I became the chief economist and first just focused on the U.S. and then uh, uh, decided um, 
you know, in, in the, in the late nineties to turn it into more of a global job with an Asian focus. Yeah. And when we were, when I invited you to come on and we were going back and forth a little bit, you sent me a, a piece about your, what you consider to be your worst forecast uh, uh, ever made. But before you, before we talk about that, tell me what your best forecast you ever made. What are you most proud of the, that, you know, you got and perhaps many, most other people did not? Well, I joined Morgan Stanley in 1982 uh-huh. in the depths of what was then the worst recession on record. And, um, you know, I came out of the blocks uh, as the new economist, the new U.S. economist with a seemingly outrageous uh, optimistic view of the coming recovery. And that turned out to be right. Um, and then, uh, you know, I quickly realized, um, you know, unlike you, that, you know, forecasting is just too hazardous to do on a full-time <laughs> basis. And I would prefer more of a thematic approach. So I identified right. a lot of key themes that I focused on over the years, like corporate debt, uh, productivity, corporate restructuring. Uh, and then uh, I think the pivotal moment for me, Mark, came uh, in the late 90s, the depths of the Asian financial crisis. I was heading up uh, you know, a highly ranked global economics team that I built at Morgan Stanley that had no clue as to how this crisis uh, was about uh, to unfold and what would bring it to an end. And I started going out to China in the, in the late 1990s uh, yeah. every other month. Hmm. Uh, and I'd been there before, but I, I didn't know the place at all and quickly figured out that China was cut from a different cloth uh, and would lead um, Asia and eventually play an important role in driving the global economy uh, in the early 2000s, and, and that really became my calling card. Moved out there uh, full-time um, in, in uh, around 2007 uh, and really became uh, hugely optimistic on China and stayed on, the, on that um, trajectory for a number of years. And it was only recently that I have seriously began to uh, rethink my um, sort of permanent optimism on China. Yeah. So that was a great forecast, right? Late 90s, early 2000s, to kind of forecast China was going to be such a dominant player on the global economic scene. That, that That's, I don't think many people saw that coming. Uh, yeah, I was, I was, uh, criticized, sometimes ridiculed for being a sort of a Wall Street sell-side shill. And, mm. and um, you know, the, I, I, I did a lot of things on Wall Street that I'm proud of and a few things I regret, but I always stayed true to my own uh, convictions. I felt that uh, analytical credibility was key. Um, you know, there are, there are always conflicts of interest in Wall Street who where big companies like Morgan Stanley, you know, represent uh, clients who want you to say good things about uh, their companies and their markets. But but I never did that. I never really compromised my view for 
commercial purposes. And, and so my forecast was really, um, I think, um, you know, pretty reflective of some deeply held analytical views that I developed over the years with respect to China and its role in Asia. Yeah, and you, you should know I I'm a huge fan. I you know of course followed you from afar as this young economist and always uh, learned a lot from as you said your kind of thematic view of the world. It was really very important to uh, uh, to provide that kind of context as to what was going on in the in the broader economy. So always uh, I'm always I've always been a big fan, and I'm very appreciative that you again decided to come here and uh, talk with us. Hey, Happy before, to well, thank hey, you for your kind words. Oh, oh, but before we dive into uh, China, uh, I got to ask you, turning to the U.S., because, you know, I know you're, and I'm going to force you to forecast a little bit, <laughs> uh, but uh, where do you stand on uh, U.S. recession? I mean, that has been top of mind now for the better part of a year ever since the Fed started jacking up interest rates here. Uh, and historically, obviously, when you have high inflation and the Fed on the war path, you end up in recession. So it's understandable. But what's your thinking, current thinking about uh, the U.S. economy and recession prospects? Well, you you started out by making note of a, of a piece I wrote, I don't know, a year and a half ago called mm. My Worst Forecasting Error Ever. And that's when I was... Um, dumb enough to go, you know, put my forecasting hat back on for the U.S., which I had stuffed in a closet somewhere, and uh, argue that, um, you know, coming out of COVID, we, we were going to lapse back into a double dip. Obviously, we did not do that. Uh, and uh, that was a, you know, just a reminder of uh, the impossibility of of, of sometimes forecasting these, um, you know, um, off the wall, um, low probability uh, aberrations. Uh, I had actually written a fair amount about double dips back when I was a U.S. forecaster, and 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 got a few of those calls right, and uh, thought I was still smart enough to pull it off again, and I was not. Uh, so I, it's a long way of answering your question is I, I don't know if we're going to go into recession or not. I am convinced that, uh, you know, the lags of monetary policy, long and variable as they are, uh, are certainly going to take a toll on economic growth, whether that culminates in outright recession or just a, a growth recession where the growth rate stays below potential for long enough to drive the unemployment rate up. It's hard to say at this point. Uh, I do feel strongly that um, uh, the Fed has uh, a long way to go in keeping uh, the policy rate at this elevated level. Whether or not they do another tightening or two, as Jay Powell indicated uh, yesterday, that remains to be seen. I don't think it really matters if the funds rate peaks at 5% or 5.5%, but I think it's important to note that only in the month of May did the nominal federal funds rate go above the year-on-year -year headline CPI mm -hmm. inflation rate. I mean, we've had 
you know, maybe two months now, if you want to throw in June, where uh, monetary policy can be can be uh, described as uh, restrictive. Uh, and I just want to remind you, I don't, not you, but your viewers, because mm-hmm. you know all this stuff, that um, the real federal funds rate, Fed funds less headline CPI, uh, the average of it since 1960 has been a positive 1%. So we're just, we're just sort of getting back to average. And if you believe that the Fed needs to be restricted for a while to make certain that inflation is not going to rear its ugly head again, uh, then you probably got to, you know, have a, a view that uh, that real federal funds rate has got to be higher on average for a fairly lengthy period of time. And, you know, we're just now entering that zone for the for the first time. And uh, I mean, I think I, I, I looked at the numbers first time in like 44, 45 months. So Long way to go, and uh, we'll see how those lags kick in. Yeah, you don't want to tell us one way or the other, Chris. It sounds sounds bearish to me. I don't know. What that's you what think? I heard. That's, that's what, what that's what Chris is her. You too, Marissa. Yeah, I heard him describing a slow session. Oh, oh really? I okay. <laughs> yeah, slow session, growth recession, growth recession, growth recession. Yeah. Well, Marissa's uh, referring to a, a term that uh, Chris coined, the slow session. Actually, there's he bought the URL. It's a, a no recession, but an economy that's got not, not going anywhere fast for a while. It sounds sounds like yeah, that. it's sort of a you know a gutless answer to your uh, important <laughs> question. Not at all. Although you know. Uh, just to say, Steve, when you sent me that piece, this and this is you have this uh, illustrious career over four decades, of, you know, so many uh, 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 predictions of what's going to happen and and forecasts, and that was your worst. I'm going, boy, that that wasn't really that bad because <laughs> it, because how could you have figured out that you know we we're going to get the massive policy response that we did, right? Both on the monetary side, but also on the fiscal side, because. We got that huge American Rescue Plan, two trillion deficit financed, and that kind of. I think you're. I think you were on the. You were right. If we didn't get something like that, we might have ended up in recession. At that yeah. Point. Who knows? I mean, it was a good title, so you know, it it um, uh, it, it got a fair amount of attention, and um, you know, I I argue in that piece that as wrong as I was on the outcome, um, I made the mistake. What I think were for the right reasons and many of those you just alluded to. So let's turn to China in, the, in real time. Uh, the Chinese economy, uh, a lot of hope that it would kind of take off here this year uh, as it ended its no COVID policy at the end of last year coming into this. And it feels like, you know, there, there's there's been recovery, but if it, it's been disappointing. And uh, today's June 15th for the listener, because we're, we're going to play this in a couple of weeks. I think that if I read the headlines correctly, I haven't had a chance to look. The Chinese cut interest rates uh, uh, overnight in an effort to try to stimulate the economy. So obviously, the Chinese authorities are not happy with the way things are going. H- how would you care, uh, Steve, how would you characterize the Chinese economic recovery at this point? Uh, what's going on there? Yeah, it's it's disappointing, and I think this is a surprise. I mean, if what we and most uh, large economies learned is when you lock down your economy for 
understandable reasons, even, even if your policies are sort of screwed up as they were in China with this zero COVID policy, once you end the lockdowns um, and you do any semblance of reopening, it's it's a sure thing that you're going to have a snack back uh, to some degree. And, you know, that was evident in, you know, for a few months, uh, January, February, and March. And then things have really petered out in April and May. Uh, and the second quarter, uh, on a sequential basis, if I look at uh, my old Morgan Stanley team, uh, the sequential growth for the second quarter is a number close to zero. Mm. Uh, and they're moving, I think, um, pretty aggressively to provide some stimulus to uh, <clears throat> housing and infrastructure, which is a an old playbook they've used repeatedly over the years in, uh, in China. Uh, and they... Um, I think are frustrated that the turnaround and improvement in sentiment that they expected would occur once they ended zero COVID just didn't catch. Uh, and in particular, the consumer uh, where um, sentiment is adversely affected by a number of things, not the least of which is a youth unemployment rate and those in the 16 to 24 year old population cohort is like 21%. Uh, and they had a lot of people uh, graduating uh, college this summer and the risk is that number is gonna go higher. And that's a real red flag for a nation that has always been so focused on social stability and providing opportunities for the younger generation. So. They're going to move aggressively on policy and may provide uh, some impetus for the second half of this year. But, you know, my concerns about China are really more fundamental than that. Mm -hmm. And I worry that um, it's not just the conflict with the U.S. It's not just the um, uh, the. Uh, the, the problems uh, with um, some of the regulatory changes they've made, but they've got some big longer term uh, growth issues underscored by the twin pressures of um, demography uh, and weakness in underlying productivity. Uh, and that's sort of a Japanese-like problem that uh, has up until recently really hobbled Japan for decades and could prove far more problematic from China, for China than they ever thought. Yeah, I want to explore that in a lot more detail. But uh, one more thing before we move on, because uh, I'm, you know, I, I generally think of what's going on in China through the prism of what it means for the rest of the world in the U.S. And I'm a little uh, confused there. Uh, you know, obviously, a weak Chinese economy means less global trade and perhaps foreign direct investment, but it also has kept commodity prices down, particularly oil prices down. And oil, you know, has been so central to uh, pushing U.S. economies into recession. I mean, I think, I don't think I'm exaggerating. I think we've had a dozen recessions since World War II, every single one of them, 
uh, has been preceded by a spike in uh, in oil prices. Uh, so we're less dependent than we were in the past, but we're still dependent. And the fact that China has been kind of struggling here a bit and not consuming a lot of oil um, has kept uh, oil prices down, and that's been helpful. So when you add this all up, what do you think? Is this a good thing, a bad thing that the Chinese economy is struggling here at, at this point in time for the U.S. and European economies? Well, um, looking aside from some of the geopolitical uh, issues, which, which we can come back to if mm-hmm. you want, um, I think it's generally a bad thing for the world. Uh, China, since the global financial crisis, accounted for uh, about a third of cumulative growth in world GDP. So it's it's that one third is not going to zero, but it's going to a number now significantly uh, below that. Uh, you know, another way to look at this is the five-year moving average of the Chinese GDP growth rate peaked at eleven point seven percent, I believe, in two thousand seven, hmm. uh, and this year it's below five. So you know, big engine of the world economy is. And I won't say it's sputtering, but it's certainly um, slowing down enough to worry about uh, a stalling out. Uh, and you know, I look at the IMF's five-year forecast for global GDP starting in 2024. The number is for the five years going out is three percent. Now that may not sound like a big deal, but it turns out. That's the weakest five-year ahead forecast for global growth that the IMF has had in about 25 years. The trend growth in the global economy is about three and a half percent because you know the world economy is a big place, 200 countries. You know some grow rapidly, some grow less rapidly, but uh, relative to a three and a half percent trend for the broad constellation of economies in the world. The prognosis is lousy, and I think that China, uh, the slowdown in China accounts for a huge portion of that weak prognosis. And the final thing I'd say is when you have global growth uh, and Chinese growth as slow as it appears to be likely over the next several years, you don't have the resilience, you don't have the cushion that you might normally have to withstand the the blow of a shock. We always have shocks. And um, that's why I I worry about a stalling out here. If you have a shock at a slow growth rate, you could tip into uh, outright recession for the global economy or even for China. Yeah, totally. I I guess in uh, in the current environment where everybody's trying to get inflation back in, except in China where inflation isn't the issue, but everywhere else, maybe it's not such a bad thing. You know that if the China was rip roaring right now and the global economy was feasting on that, that might be a real problem for monetary policy and and interest rates. In the in this again in the current context, but uh, yeah, I think that's you know you know a major source of global growth uh, is sort of significantly impaired. uh, And that is not a concern uh, for inflation fighting 
central banks in our country or elsewhere around the world. They got plenty of other problems on their hands, like a you know a record low in the unemployment rate, but certainly not uh, getting um, uh, overheating from a segment of the global economy that had been uh, uh, you know really white hot for a long, long time. Yeah. Let's turn to the longer term forces you were, or uh, trends that you were just talking about. Uh, and uh, I thought I'd do it in, from this prism. We're, we're, one point of contact that we have is we're both on the uh, National Committee of U.S.-China Relations. And that's the, for folks out there, that's the same group that uh, I think helped sponsor the ping pong tournament yeah. uh, back mm-hmm. in the day. Uh, and a lot of illustrious folks kind of been on that committee over the years, uh, not certainly not including me, but you know, folks like like Stephen. And we've got it's a it's a cool group because it got a lot of different folks, both Chinese and in in U.S. And uh, uh, when I first joined, uh, and this was before things kind of went south for China in a big way, and you know some of the concerns, you were a pretty strong. What I would call China bull. You're very optimistic about China's growth prospects and uh, future. And we have another fellow on the on the uh, that we've had on the podcast before, Dan Rosen of Rhodium Group, who's a screaming China bear. I mean, about you know, a very bearish guy. Uh, and you guys would go at it, and I'd love I'd love that. It was I wish I could have had a that as a podcast, you two would go at it. <laughs> it was great. And everyone kind of just stood back and, you know, listened to this. Uh, but more recently you've turned, uh, uh, and I hope I've got this right. You, you are something of a bear now. Would, would, do I have that uh, roughly yeah. right? Yeah. I, I think, you know, about a year ago, um, you know, I, I did, um, you know, write write a a piece. I write regular pieces for this uh, project syndicate group, and I, I wrote something. Um, uh, I think in December of twenty. Uh, what was it? I don't. You know, I was going to say twenty twenty two, but it, it was longer ago than that. But anyway, I was bemoaning. Um, you know the the once uh, optimistic view that I had held of China. And I spoke about it from this uh, prism of the Japanese experience uh, of the twin forces of demographic headwinds uh, and productivity problems. But then I, you know, added in the the U.S.-China conflict and then this mega shift uh, back to a uh, an ideologically centric uh, uh, central planning model that revolves around uh, Xi Jinping and his autocratic leadership. And I said that China's now in a vice and um, it's hard to envision uh, a scenario that uh, unleashes the powerful growth that we had gotten accustomed to in China for 35 to 40 years. So there's a long list of, it feels like a long list of worries about China China and its longer term growth prospects. You've mentioned a few already, uh, demographics, the aging of the population. You mentioned uh, the autocratic uh, shift uh, in uh, the way China is governed. Uh, mentioned the property markets. Um, 
if you had a rank order, what would be kind of at the top of your list of concerns? Or is that even fair to do? Is it just, a, you know, a melange of things that we should be worried about here? Well, you know, the, the anchor to it, I think, is um, the decline of the working age population. Uh, the working age population in China peaked in, I think it was 2016. Uh, and we knew this was coming because of the unsustainable uh, one uh, child family planning policy. And so, you know, we know from just simple growth accounting, then when you lose um, your working age population, the only way you can sustain high growth is to increase the growth rate of productivity. So we look to productivity as the offset. And for a developing economy like China, there, there are lots of reasons to think that, you know, they could pull it off because they, you know, they were going from an uh, agrarian, poor society to more of a initially manufacturing, eventually services-based urban society, investing in human capital, smart people, hardworking people, dynamic new industries, uh, you know, there was good reason uh, to to be optimistic that China had the the wherewithal and the commitment to to do what you know most aging societies have a very difficult time doing, and that is to, to put in place a a model of uh, accelerating productivity growth. And then one by one, the reasons to believe that have sort of um, I think, uh, been undermined by actions that they have taken, sort of own goals um, of, of their policymakers. The first one came early on when Xi Jinping took over and decided to provide huge support for state-owned enterprises. Mm -hmm. State-owned enterprises are, you know, big behemoths that straddle you know, major sectors of the Chinese economy. And all the research that has been done on state of enterprises tell you that uh, they're largely you know, ossified bureaucracies that uh, generate low productivity, low returns. Uh, and um, that would really be a, a significant force in hobbling uh, the productivity story. That was bad enough. The second thing they did that I think has more of a prospective problem for productivity was they went after the private sector, especially the internet companies that have mm -hmm. been so dynamic uh, in leading China down the road of a innovative, uh, uh, vibrant, society that would not only boost uh, uh, overall productivity, but would provide employment opportunities for their young people. Uh, and of course, you know, couple that with the point I just made on soaring youth unemployment, uh, you can see that um, the regulatory pressures they have put on the sector now for now nearly three years uh, have raised a real uh, red flag with respect to youth, youth employment. Uh, and the dynamism that a large economy like China needs to sustain uh, uh, innovation and 
and again, provide another important source of productivity growth that an aging society needs. So those are two really tough developments that have come about largely, I think, through policy mistakes that they have made uh, that they seem unwilling uh, to really uh, reverse. What also, uh, and you've alluded to this and uh, and uh, mentioned it a couple times, is the kind of the shift in uh, the political economy of China. Do you think, is it fair to say that the uh, that, that it has moved in an autocratic direction and that is a problem in terms of uh, longer-term economic growth? Is, is that fair to say? Well, that's that's certainly the conclusion that I've come to. It's yeah. highly debatable and, you know, they would, uh, you know, take the other side of that, of course. But mm-hmm. you got to look at the long history of, you know, how China's pulled it off. Uh, you know, the economy was on the brink of failure after the Cultural Revolution ended uh, with the death of Mao in 1976. And so after a post-Mao power struggle uh, uh, under the guidance of leadership of uh, Deng Xiaoping, they moved to a more you know, market-based uh, uh, opening up of, of, of the economy and drawing heavily on uh, investment and exports. The state still had a lot of control, but, you know, it was a trajectory that was driven by reforms and opening up. And so um, it was largely for that reason that uh, many, and this is where I got my optimism from, uh, became super bullish on the upside of Chinese economic growth. The pivotal point for me, Mark, came in 2007, right before the global financial crisis, uh, the, a former premier of China by the name of Wen Jiabao, a guy who I actually got to know pretty well, he said um, uh, in March of 2007 that, uh, and I, I'm sort of paraphrasing this, he's saying something like, don't be fooled, our economy looks strong on the surface, but beneath the surface, it's unstable, unbalanced, uncoordinated, mm. and ultimately unsustainable. And, you know, a big debate then ensued about how to respond to this criticism that the premier was making. Uh, and out of that debate emerged a decision to rebalance the economy uh, away from investment and exports and manufacturing uh, toward internal private consumption. Uh, and services, uh, and I became even more optimistic then uh, because this was a model that was turned out to be flexible, uh, and the leaders were willing to stay the course, make a big bet, and change the model to stay the course of rapid growth and development until Xi Jinping came along. And in late 2012, um, when he first took office as the general secretary of the Communist Party of China, a few months later became the president, uh, which he's remained in both capacities since then. And it looks like he's going to stay there for a long time to, uh, to come. Uh, the 
the shift toward reforms and opening up uh, has really backtracked. Uh, and uh, Xi Jinping has asserted power in all major aspects of economic uh, decision-making uh, and has um, you know, made a lot of policy moves that run against the grain of the Deng Xiaoping model. Uh, and for those of us who were optimistic on China because of the, the, the power and the potential of the Deng Xiaoping model, this has been a major wake-up call and a source of consternation and ultimately for me, a rethinking of the trajectory of China going forward. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, uh, when, uh, and I think it's one of the key reasons why uh, companies are now, they're certainly not moving into the same degree they were, and they are now, many are now moving out quickly. Uh, you know, not only China, but Hong Kong and moving into Singapore. It's, I think. Uh, well, I would, I would, you know, take a little issue with that. I think um, multinationals um, are, not wedded to uh, ideology, you know, they're, they're wedded to the, the bottom line. Uh, and, you know, they can hold their nose if ideology runs against the grain of their own uh, sentiment. I think the the big rethink from multinationals has arisen from this major conflict between the U.S. and China uh, that raises uh, long-term questions uh, about um, uh, the desire on the part of the U.S. and its allies now to uh, put in place very tough policies that end up uh, containing uh, China. And, you know, in the last five years, um, uh, initially under the Trump administration, but surprisingly continued under the Biden administration, we've gone from a trade war to a tech war to now a new Cold War. Uh, and you know, this is what I wrote about in my latest book. And you know, the, the, the premise of this conflict, I've argued, is largely based on a lot of false impressions or false narratives that we hold about China and that China holds about us. Uh, but they're you know politically expedient for us to embrace. Uh, and they taken us into a pretty dangerous place uh, in terms of this conflict that I think have got a lot of uh, uh, multinationals who were once um, uh, committed steadfastly to China as an offshoring solution or as a, uh, as a market to be tapped uh, are really rethinking their, their strategies toward China. Yeah, I would. I, I agree with you. Uh, multinationals can hold their nose. It's it's when the property rights are questioned, and when people kind of were there and then are not there, <laughs> or they knock on the door and you know you you don't know what that means, you know, for for your business. I think that's what you know has got people uh, multinationals in a little bit of uh, angst or a fair amount of angst, I'd say, at this point. But let's uh, before I move on to the U.S.-China relationship, I'm going to stop for one second and I'm going to turn to Chris and Marissa. Anything, and I am going to we are going to talk about U.S.-China next. Anything that I should have brought up that I didn't that you guys would like to ask? Anything at all? I, not you don't oh. need to. I'm just asking if, if I missed something. 
Yeah, I, I get. I think this is where you're probably going anyway. But given this backdrop, which sounds quite pessimistic, how does this resolve? What is? What do you think is the is the path forward here for China's well, economy and for the relationship? But well, I, I've got a, I've got a good answer for the relationship. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll hold off till we get into that in sure. more detail. But you know, since you don't have guys, don't have a question you want to add. I just, I'm really <laughs> been dying to ask Mark a question uh, based on, you know, the piece that I wrote about my worst forecasting mistake. Um, how about oh, one, no. one a year? You're not going to do that to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's only fair, right? Yeah, no, no, it's fair. You know, I've got this, this kind of mental bias. I only remember the things I got right. <laughs> I kind of blocked the things that I got wrong. Let me, let me think about I will let me think about that as we can move on and I'll, I'll come back with an answer. Uh, but uh, I don't have a really good one right at the top of my mind, which is bad, but I should. But uh, let me uh, let's turn back to US China for a second. And and by the way, I will answer your question, Steve. I just have to give that three seconds. Right. Don't worry. I have plenty. Of, the problem is change got, the subject. The problem I've got so many. <laughs> now, my answers are long enough. You'll have answer. <laughs> so many areas. I'm not sure which one to pick. Yeah. Uh, but. Um, uh, here, I want to go going back to your book and the title of the book. You know uh, that uh, the the false narratives, the uh, you know the accidental conflict around false narratives. Let me. I want to just take two minutes and tell you my narrative and tell tell you tell me if I've got this if I'm falling into the trap. Uh, so my sense is that you know the 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 relationship with China. Uh, entered into the modern times with its entry into the World Trade Organization in 2001. And the idea was, let, you know, let China uh, come in and, and, uh, and uh, hopefully flourish. And they did uh, with uh, as global trade expanded and investment in China increased. Uh, and yeah, China may not be playing exactly by the rules and, uh, you know, flouting them here or there, but no big deal. You know, they're still small. Uh, country, and over time, the thinking would is that uh, you know once they saw the benefits of of a free and fair global trade and investment and property rights and everything else, that they would uh, evolve into a, a market economy that you know mimicked uh, the U.S. and others, and it, this would be good for everybody, a win-win at least in a macroeconomic sense. We came up to Obama, and in uh, Obama, you know, now we're in a 10, 15 years in, uh, clearly there's been some losers in all of this, the U.S. manufacturing base. And and it doesn't look like China's kind of coming on board uh, to the degree that was hoped for in terms of playing by the rules. So Obama's idea was, okay, let's have the Trans-Pacific Partnership, free trade deal, Pacific Rim nations can't, China can't enter until they play by the rules. So kind of like a, you know, you get a carrot uh, approach. Of course, Trump, uh, that TPP kind of sort of almost got up to the finish line, didn't quite could get across. Obama left, Trump came in, Trump said, I, that doesn't make any sense to me, blew it up pretty immediate, pretty quickly through some, I remember his first executive order, I don't know, maybe a second, and said, we're not doing that, and then proceeded to go down the trade war path. And, uh, you know, since then, we've been at each other's throat. And it becomes self-reinforcing at this point. So, you know, we're now pulling away at a very rapid pace. We are, we are 
decoupling uh, in the global economy, which was clearly globalizing, more integrated from 2000 to, you know, Trump has now is now moving in the other direction. And it doesn't look good because th- th- this is going to change anytime soon, because if there's one thing that Republicans and Democrats can agree on, it's they don't like China. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. We don't you don't like China. And so we're not we're not this isn't there's no way to put this thing back in the bottle. We're, we're moving apart and we're going to have to learn to live with that and all the ramifications of that. OK, I'm going to stop right there. Did I get that? Is that one of the, is that one of the false narratives? Yeah, you nailed it, Mark. You did a really <laughs> yeah, good job. I know it. I know it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you've done a, a very accurate job of describing the Washington narrative with respect to China. I think you know that is the the, the view. The, the one thing you left out uh, is. Um, sort of the intellectual framework that the Obama administration embraced to formulate um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. This is the so-called Asian pivot, where um, Obama had this view, and it was actually um, developed by uh, Kurt Campbell, who's now his primary uh, Asian point person uh, for the for the Biden administration, but back in the Obama administration, Kurt Campbell was um, uh, fairly high up in, in in the State Department under Hillary Clinton. Uh, the idea was that you know we were moving to a point where we were going to be done with our adventures in the Middle East, and we need to get back uh, to. Um, focusing on Asia. Uh, and this really did, I think, set the framework for a, a China containment strategy that the Obama, uh, President Obama and Kirk Campbell to this day deny, but you know the actions speak louder than words. The reason this is a false narrative is for some of the points that you alluded to that the Washington view has long um, thought that uh, the trade deficit that the U.S. has uh, is the enemy of the manufacturing sector, uh, blue-collar workers, American communities, uh, and China's the culprit uh, behind uh, the carnage that has occurred uh, in the manufacturing sector. Never mind, by the way, this was the same argument that was utilized not nearly as vehemently, but very strenuously at the time against Japan in the late 1980s. And what I argue in the book is that this is a false narrative uh, because it really doesn't give due appreciation to the fact that the trade deficit uh, in the United States is not a bilateral problem between two nations like U.S. Japan in the 80s and U.S. China right now, but it's a multilateral problem reflecting our shortfall of domestic savings. When countries don't save and they want to invest and grow, they have to run a balance of payments deficit to import the surplus saving to close the circle. Uh, And when we do that, we run deficits with 
many, many countries, hence the name multilateral trade deficit. Last year, we had trade deficits marked with 106 different countries. China was the biggest, but the share had come down a lot because of Trump's tariffs. But the Chinese share, although it shrank, that shrinkage just was diverted to other higher cost uh, countries that uh, ended up putting taxes on American uh, companies and consumers. We blame China just like we blamed uh, Japan because we are unable or unwilling to boost our overall uh, rate of domestic savings, which today is, you know, I think, it, and I haven't checked in a while. The last number I saw was net domestic savings and, and taking out depreciation, which is um, a correct way to look at it, was less than one and a half percent of overall national income. Uh, and for a, a leading nation in, in the world, that is is really unacceptable. Uh, and um, it's largely driven by our budget deficits, but it's also driven by shortfalls of uh, personal saving, which um, if you strip out the, the windfalls due to uh, you know COVID assistance, uh, remains sharply uh, below historic norms uh, uh, for uh, American households. And until we can you know get our savings rate back up, we're going to have trade deficits in in in, in perpetuity. And our politicians are not going to want to look in the mirror and say, God, look at look at what we have done with these budget deficits. Let's blame them on, you know, Japan in the 1980s and China today. And that, I think, is a, a, a classic uh, false narrative that I devote a full chapter to in, in my book called Bilateral Bluster. Uh, it works for Washington but it really doesn't square the circle uh, from a, uh, an economic point of macroeconomic point of view, in, in my opinion. And finally, just one other aspect of your narrative that uh, um, I find, um, uh, again, very accurate in terms of describing the Washington sentiment, but not <laughs> accurate in terms of uh, of, of, of what is embedded in uh, China's um, WTO accession protocols. Uh, China, after a lengthy negotiation, uh, was admitted to the WTO in late 2001. Uh, I've read those protocols so many times. Uh, they're technical. Um, there were a lot of... Um, um, uh, things that China agreed to that uh, they have complied with. There are a number of things where the compliance has certainly been disputed, and there are probably some areas where they have just not complied at all. But in nowhere in those protocols did China say, okay, uh, we're going to join and we are going to become more like you. Uh, the idea that uh, China signed up for WTO on the provision that they would become more like us uh, is something, it was wishful thinking uh, at best. China's always been, I think, um, uh, very focused on maintaining its own system with its own values, uh, its own characteristics, as they like to call it, uh, and felt they were always uh, well within their right uh, to maintain their 
strong sense of an independent approach to, to governance uh, and economic organization. Uh, and uh, uh, I think they take enormous exception, uh, understandably so, I might add, uh, to uh, uh, a US-centric view that says that uh, you've broken a promise to become more like us. That was never a promise that the Chinese made, uh, nor would they uh, have been expected to have made in in, in signing up uh, to join the WTO. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I, I, that's probably wishful thinking. I, I'm I'm sure that's what people thought, but there was yeah, I I agree. There was no reason to actually believe that. That certainly wasn't codified in the WTO. But what about um, intellectual property or cyber or you know uh, the ability to own you know, uh, assets and businesses within China uh, to, to reciprocate, you know, with regard to, you know, the, that that uh, uh, that FDI, uh, you know, those other points of oh, yeah. contention. Well, all those yeah. are, you know, fair points, and um, many of them are contentious. Um, the idea of reciprocity is very important, and, and that's sort of the one of the key premises on uh, WTO accession that has been under uh, dispute for a number of years, especially the subsidies that China uh, directs to its state-owned enterprises uh, are at odds with um, the reciprocal, reciprocal agreement that we felt uh, is appropriate in injecting subsidies uh, into our own system. Although, of course, we have now moved yeah. aggressively to subsidize um uh, a number of industries during crises, as well as in dealing with global competition. The Biden administration has moved full force into the industrial policy that the Trump administration was so critical of China uh, for embracing for years. So we have to be, uh, I think, a little bit more circumspect in um, uh, substantiating that criticism. On the um, the cyber area, I think, you know, there's clearly major issues between us and China. Um, uh, we are, I think, both um, uh, uh, in in a uh, in a quagmire with respect to um, uh, the, the cyber hacking that occurs, the listening that occurs. There's a big dispute now over. Uh, surveillance, uh, offshore surveillance from a Cuban listening post. And yet, you know, as you read, as the story unfolds, you recognize and you read about all the listening posts that we have um, that are pretty close to um, uh, China as well. Satellite surveillance is something that both nations practice. Um, the intellectual property rights is is a very thorny and very important issue. And I, again, I have a chapter on that uh, in my latest book. And, you know, I won't bore you with um, all the details, but the evidence that we have assembled uh, to provide, quote, hard estimates of intellectual property theft coming out of China uh, are not worth the paper they are printed on. Hmm. Uh, and um, they're based on a series of very dubious studies that were wrapped up in a slick cover by something called the uh, the IP Commission, headed up by two illustrious Americans, 
It gets cited all the time in congressional debates uh, as a hard evidence of the greatest theft of intellectual property uh, in the history of humanity. And again, the, the reports are not worth the paper they are printed on. Um, I, I do want to talk about what we should do about this. Uh, but before I get there, one further, one final question before we get onto the sort of the policy prescriptions is China, Taiwan, U.S. How worried should we be? I mean, we you know we have a lot of uh, clients in APAC that are very, very. Everyone's nervous about this around the world, but particularly in APAC, as you for good reason, they're very nervous about this and asking us to run different scenarios uh, with regard to how that conflict may play out. Uh, how do you think about that and how big a deal is that? I think it's a big deal. I think I would certainly advise uh, being worried about it and that your scenario con uh, contingency exercises that you go through are uh, Im important to inform your uh, multinational clients about the risk of this. I think if left to its own devices, um, China recognizes that um, while it certainly has long-term aspirations of reunification with Taiwan, that to um, uh, accelerate uh, the reunification through forceful means would, would really be an unmitigated disaster that the, the world would respond uh, uh, if not militarily, with uh, you know, really serious draconian type sanctions that would uh, isolate uh, China from the world um, uh, at a time when it can't afford anything close to that right now, and and that would be a really a catastrophic development mm -hmm. uh, for uh, for China, for Asia, and uh, for the world. Why? So you would think that, you know, if, if that view is correct and, you know, there are those who say it's not correct. Xi Jinping has already listed a date, which is not correct, of 2027 when uh, uh, he is, is, is going to make a move. I, I would challenge that uh, view as being credible. Why worry about it if it's not going to happen? Well, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, Congress is putting enormous pressure uh, on this trouble spot, um, uh, pouring salt in the wound, if you want to call it that. Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taipei last August, uh, Kevin McCarthy's um, uh, meeting uh, in April in California with the president of um, uh, Taiwan. These are hugely contentious issues. Uh, Joe Biden has said, I think, three or four times that in the event of a Chinese uh, uh, military action in Taiwan, that we would rush to their defense. And, you know, those comments have been quickly uh, rolled back by the, you know, the, the diplomatic staffers on the, uh, you know, and the administration saying, oh, he didn't mean that. He really didn't. Don't worry about it. You know, we're still in favor of the one China policy. Nothing has changed. Well, nothing has changed, but the political spin has changed a lot. And if we continue to put our foot on the throat of the Chinese with respect to 
uh, Taiwan, the risk of an accident, hence the, uh, the title accidental conflict, is something to take very seriously. So I, I worry about it uh, a lot. And um, uh, the, the Congress is, uh, uh, if anything, continuing to beat really hard on this, uh, this issue and many other issues with respect to um, uh, their political dissatisfaction uh, with uh, everything that China stands for. So how far out on the tail is it, uh, Steve? Uh, not, not, I know military conflict is one thing, but any kind of conf- uh, thing that boils over here that really results in sanctions and some economic disrupt- significant economic disruption, is it uh, 1%, 5%, 10%? I mean, just order, I mean, where do you think, of, how, where on the tail do you if think? If it's it 1%, is? I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't worry about it. Okay. Um, if, if I don't think it's as high as, 25 percent but okay. you know somewhere you know in, in mm. the mid-range of that zone and it's a therefore a higher number than I would like it to be uh, if I were you know running scenarios like you and would tell my clients oh don't worry about it it's not a big deal this is a big deal it's worth worrying about uh, and um, uh, I think we need a a better approach to dealing with uh, with China on this and many other uh, issues. And, you know, as we speak right now, and you say this will be broadcast in a few weeks, we'll know the outcome of uh, Secretary of State Blinken's visit to uh, Beijing um, uh, this this coming weekend. Uh, I run the risk of, of being embarrassed again by <laughs> saying something ahead of that that will be broadcast after the fact. But I, I'm not looking for a major breakthrough here. I think yeah. uh, there's just a lot of bad blood right now that um, is, is not going to be resolved. It's a good thing he's going, but I don't think he's going with any secret agenda for uh, uh, conflict resolution. So here we are. You know, obviously uh, things are gone, if not off the rails. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair to say they're off the rails. How do we get the train back on the track? You know, what, what would we, what would, and I'm sure there's not, there's no smoking gun solution here. It's one step at a time, but how, how do you think about the path forward to get us back on the track? Well, I, I've written this book called Accidental Conflict, which is a, a pretty depressing book. And when I finished the draft of the book, I said, you know, I'm more depressed <laughs> having written it than I was going into it. So I, I, I learned from all my years on Wall Street that uh, identifying a problem is, is you've got to do more than that. And so I went back uh, and worked for another six months on uh, a, a way out. Oh, cool. Uh, and um, there are three legs to the stool for me to resolving this seemingly intractable Conflict. The first one is really obvious, just rebuilding trust. There's no mm-hmm. trust right now between the countries. Uh, and so I came up with a trust um, agenda with some little things, easy things, low-hanging fruit. First, uh, reopening closed consulates in both countries, um, restarting popular student foreign exchange programs like the Fulbright, uh, making it easier to get visas. And then tougher things like relaxing constraints on non-governmental organizations, uh, 
NGOs to bring civil society, civic society back into the trust building framework. And then big existential issues like climate, uh, global health, and cybersecurity. Presuming we can make some progress in some aspects of the trust agenda, two other things quickly, Mark. Uh, one, focus on market opening initiatives to allow and encourage more cross-border investment uh, between the two countries. These are inherently pro-growth and they would need to be framed around uh, successful conclusion of negotiations on a bilateral investment treaty. We were about 95% of the way done on that in 2016. And then Trump immediately took it off the table. Uh, and uh, we need to go back and to borrow uh, Biden's um, uh, sort of mantra, finish the job. Um, the third um, leg of the stool is the one that I'm most excited about and actually have the most invested in having written about it extensively. And that is to uh, uh, create a new architecture of engagement between the two countries framed around the establishment of a US-China secretariat, a permanent organization uh, located in a neutral venue, call it Switzerland, call it Singapore, uh, that is staffed up by uh, large complements of US and Chinese professionals who are working full-time on all aspects of the relationship, from ec economics and trade to technology and innovation uh, to uh, the existential issues like cyber health um, and um, um, the um, and, and even human rights, I would add to that. Uh, and this would be an organization that would, uh, unlike the current uh, sort of episodic uh, dialogue driven uh, uh, efforts where, you know, Blinken goes to Beijing or uh, Xi Jinping meets with Biden in, uh, uh, in Bali. Uh, the secretary would be doing this on a full-time basis, 24 seven, uh, and really develop policy white papers, uh, would have a convening function to bring experts in to solve difficult problems like COVID, for example, which could have been uh, resolved far better than, than it was uh, um, back in 2020, uh, and have a dispute resolution screening function. So when issues come up between the two countries, they can be resolved without hyper-escalation as we're seeing right now. So that's my plan, you know, rebuild trust, lower investment barriers, and come up with a new architecture for permanent engagement. Uh, and uh, the odds of it being implemented right now are a number slightly larger than zero. <laughs> but um, you know, I'm more than willing to listen to any other uh, plans. Well, I think we're on the wrong path right now uh, in the risk of accidental conflict is high and rising. I hear you. I hear you. It's a wonderful future you laid out. And, and I think you'd make a, a fantastic leader of that institution. <laughs> that would be, we need someone like you running the, running the show. I'm too old for that. I'm looking no, for you. Like never, you. <laughs> never, never. Uh, 
Hey, uh, we're getting along in the tooth here. I don't want to keep you much longer. I do want to answer your question. Uh, you know, my major forecast error, and I'm going to answer it this way. It's more about an error in forecast, I think, uh, bias. Uh, you know, you've heard the whole, the hedgehog versus the fox in terms of forecasting. I am definitely a hedgehog. Uh, I've got a worldview. I've got a model in my mind. Uh, you know, I've honed it you know, down to, down to the detail, every detail. And I, I am reluctant to give that up even when I should. Uh, and, you know, sometimes that serves me well, oftentimes, you know, it gets me into some trouble. Uh, but I will say this, Steve, I, I'm getting older as well. And I have been out there very outspokenly saying that this time is different. And, you know, those are the you know, very dreaded words in our economics profession that we will we will be able to navigate through this period without an outright recession, and uh, you know we'll see. That could I could go down in flames here, uh, and that could be my biggest uh, forecast error. But I think it's just being being a hedgehog. Can I um, can I ask Steve finally? Are you because uh, the national committee is going to be meeting in Beijing in October? Are you going to be there? Are you going to go to that? Are you going to be able to go? I'm not sure. Um, I may I may have a conflict because I'm actually Bummer. committed to going to um, uh, speak in China. It, it possibly in the same week. It, it, if it if it works, I would combine them, and, and and I would really like to go. I've really valued that dialogue over the years. Um, you know, I think the guys on the other side are really terrific. I've gotten to know them pretty totally. well, and. You know, I think, you know, it's a great time to exchange views and, um, um, you know, hear what they have to say at a pivotal point and uh, for them to get a sense of what's going on on our, our side. So I, I hope that will work, but I, I, I just right now don't know. Well, I hope to see that. I think I'm going to be able, I got the stars aligned. I was going to Asia anyway. I was supposed to be in Singapore and mid-Asia and Japan and so forth and so on. So this yeah, yeah like it's going to work. It'd so be that'd great. be, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's really worth doing. So yeah. I, I hope it can work for me too. Good, good. I hope to see you there. And hey, Steve, thanks so much for uh, coming on and uh, really appreciate the time and energy. And, and uh, you know, I do think um, your path forward uh, is uh, is a very hopeful one. And, and hopefully we go down that path or something close to it, you know, in the future. So well, let's put it this way, Mark, we, we need a new path. Uh, we the path, path we're on is a bad, bad path. And the framework that shapes the path is the one that, um, you know, I find most troubling. I don't think we have a, a really coherent uh, grand strategy of what we would like uh, China to look like and what we would like our relationship with China to look like in um, sustaining our future. And, and I think we can do a much better job than we've done. And to Chris and Marissa, I'm sorry, guys, I locked you out. I mean, I had Steve all to myself and I, okay. yeah, I was very protective of that. So, but we have another podcast. I think we're going to tape it tomorrow, tomorrow for this weekend. Yeah. And we got a lot to talk about Fed, a lot of, uh, we'll play a statistics game, a lot of things going on in the economy to talk about. So we'll have an opportunity mm -hmm. to do that. But uh, <clears throat> with that, um, we're going to call this a podcast. Take care, everyone. <laughs>